And I believe very strongly that you can transform humanity, not only society, not only social systems, but you can transform humanity by transforming the way people show up and lead in the workplace. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right. Welcome back to Hawk Talk. Today, I'm joined by Keith Ferrazzi. Thank you for joining us today, man. Eric, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. It's always great to talk to you. You too. And, you know, I'm excited about this because I actually don't know the full story. I know the early success you had, but I'm not sure how you achieved it. So, you know, assuming you weren't born, maybe you were, but you weren't born thinking you were going to be this major executive, you know, New York Times bestselling writer, youngest Fortune 500 CMO in history. Would love to roll it back to, you know, three, four, five years old, how you got started, what, you know, what life looked like. Well, certainly you spent a lot of time thinking about that because I just got back from a two-week plant medicine ayahuasca journey in Mexico, and I went way back there. So that was was a good trip. Where in Mexico? Not far outside of Tulum. Okay, got it. So look, I grew up a very poor kid, immigrant family in Pittsburgh. Where's your family from? Italy. Nice. My mom is actually an American. Her family's been here forever, but my father's family is from North Milan. So I guess the origin story is that, like any other immigrant family, the focus of coming in the United States is all about making sure your kid could do anything. You know, with an education and hard work, you can achieve anything. That's the American dream. I still believe, by the way, that the American dream is alive, despite, I think, a lot of protestation around that. But we can we can get into that conversation. I agree as well, coming from an immigrant family as well, 100%. I mean, it's not the same. It's not the same, and it isn't universally accepted as the same. But I do believe that this still is a land of prosperity. That with the right kind of ingenuity, the, the assets and the potential and the freedoms exist to really outstrip your caste system and anything else that you came from. And that's what I did. I mean, my my ingrained as a very young man was the potential that you could be president of the United States someday, Keith. And all it takes is working your ass off and a good education. Those two things I got. My father made a lot of compromises and a lot of sacrifices, as did my mother, to get me into a small private elementary school. And in Mm -hmm. that small private elementary school, we're talking about eight kids, and it was the homeschooling for the Mellon children. And my father, you know, exercised a great deal of chutzpah, which I'll, I'll claim is an Italian word, even though I know it's Yiddish. His ability to reach out and not be afraid to ask anything for his family. He reached out to the CEO of the company he was working for, a company called Kenametal, who mm-hmm. he had heard the CEO was on the board of directors of a small school for the elite in the area. It was, it was homeschooling for the Mellon children. And he reached out to the guy and said, listen, you know, my son's smart and I'd like to get him into that school. I would have been the only non-elite individual in that playground, which started to create some real challenges. I think I probably... One of the things that I've learned in my life is that insecurity born from shame will very often drive you to a disproportionate amount of success early on. And that was true for me. And then that needed to be replaced in my adult life with purpose as opposed to insecurity. So in those early days, I was ashamed of being poor. Kids used to make fun of me at school for the clothes we had, the car we drove, et cetera. I was also ashamed to bring my classmates home. My classmates had these, not just you know fancy cars and fancy houses in rich neighborhoods, but 
They also had parents that didn't yell at each other. I mean, you know, I think it was a combination of being an Italian family and there was a lot of noise in my house and it would always embarrass me when these rather waspy patriciate families that I would go and visit, which, you know, yep. out in the countryside with horses and those sort of things. And that created a lot of shame. Was, was there motivation out of that shame or was it literally like you just tried to avoid it? Curious where that drove you. Well, exactly. My point is that that shame drove me to never want to feel shame again, always wanting to feel that I could outperform, mm -hmm. be successful, no longer feel like I, I didn't deserve to be in the room, right? Yep. Now, somewhere along the way, my sexuality kicked into being. And so as a gay man, that also layered that on top of it. You know, I grew up my father's side is an Italian traditional family. My mom was is also a very traditional Protestant, not quite evangelical, but certainly much more traditional and didn't believe that homosexuality was a God-given yep. thing. And it was a choice you had to make, and it was a choice to sin. So I was faced with that, and I spent a lot of my young life through college, actually. And I've always been Christian. I've always been religious and spiritual as I've evolved in my later life mm -hmm. and believe very strongly in, in a higher power. And what I would do is I would go to church on Sundays and I would just cry to have this burden taken off of me that what I was drawn toward was something I just, I wanted to be rid of. And, and so, how old were you when that started to kick in? Well, I think, you know, in high school and college. Yeah. You know, the normal, you know, post-puberty years. Yep. But you, I think I noticed even something was different for me when I was as early as fifth grade. Mm -hmm. compounding all of the insecurity around wealth. And then I also went to continue to go to very prestigious schools. So I went to an all boys boarding school. I went to Yale, I went to Harvard and all of those places made just compounded the, you know, well, it's only the rich people that go to these schools. And back then that was relatively true, yep. and, you know, more than it is today. So the point is that along the way though, and this is where I sort of made my fame from a, from a writing perspective, telling this backstory, which is very prominent in my first book, Never Eat Alone. I mean, I didn't tell the sexuality part in Never Eat Alone. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something that I've, even in my young adult life, I was concealing that sexuality for fear. My articulated reason for doing that is I, I'm a mission-driven person that wants to be of service to the world of work and the world of leadership and the world of business. And I didn't want anything to get in the way of people hearing my message. Mm -hmm. And everybody was like, oh, that's that's magnanimous. That That's... But the reality is, I think I still harbor some of that shame and, sure. not wanting, and not wanting to take those risks. Today, that's not true. By the way, it's thanks to journeys like plant medicine that allowed me to align myself to be the most authentic person that I can be and still be successful. I want to get back to the career progression, but on that note, when did you feel that comfort level that you weren't trying to hide who you were, whether, you know, from the poverty that you came from and the homosexuality side, like it sounds like there was a lot you were trying to, as you said, make sure you belonged, quote unquote, so didn't want to throw any wrenches in that. Well, it depends. I mean, look, it's all an evolution. I could, I could say that the answer to that was last week, <laughs> or I could say that the answer to that was, you know, when I first fell in love right out of college and you know, my first partner of 10 years who I was with for, you know, from right out of graduate school, et cetera. So, I mean, there's lots of evolutions of this question. It's not like a left and right. It's sort of a evolving. The point is this. One thing I would say is all my life, I've been a seeker. Mm -hmm. And a seeker is somebody who just wants to constantly elevate. And what I learned along the way, and I created a word for it, co-elevate, is that we do it with others. Mm -hmm. So early on, there was a tipping point, And a lot of it had to do with me working at the local country club. I worked at a golf club in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, 
where Arnie Palmer was the owner of the country club, caddied for him as well, actually. That's awesome. And um, yeah. And what I learned from rich people is that rich people helped rich people. Mm-hmm. And what I learned from that is that you can either be born into it and you leverage nepotism, or you can earn your right into it by being authentic and being of service and being a good person that gets you access into relationships that can be transformative to you. I wrote in my first book, Never Eat Alone, that poverty isn't about the access of resources. It's the access of relationships. If you have relationships, you have resources. Yep. And by the way, that, that's one of the things I try to teach my sons. I have two foster children that still have a very scarcity mindset. And it's difficult to unburden yourself from something that up until the age of 12, they had been in 12 and 16, they had been in 21 different homes. Huh. So, you know, that has a lot of residual damage that it brings with people. And to this very day, even though they lived in my home, they had access to all my relationships, et cetera, they don't feel the same degree of trust and the same inclination to build those relationships Mm -hmm. and to be of service to people because their lives have been present scarcity, fear, hurt, distrust. And it's difficult to get over that in in your life, but you can't. And I have, I mean, I have in my own little small way, not the way that they toil with. But again, it's all about the success of relationships. So early on, the example I often give is a woman that I was catting with who heard that I wanted to be the president of the United States. And she got me introduced to the local congressman. And the local congressman took me under his wing, got me into speech and debate. And with all of that evolved me winning nationals in speech and debate. I would say... I would say that probably the job of being a caddy was my tipping point. But then is that high school? How old were you? High school. Yeah. yeah, nice. I was the national high school champion for speech and debate. And that got me, you know, scholarships into Yale. What'd you study at Yale? Extracurricular activities. Nice. <laughs> um, I started a fraternity at Yale. I ran for city council in New Haven. New Haven, nice. Yep. Awesome. Yep. And, and, and as a Republican, by the way, it's very funny. I mean, I'm, here I am, a, a gay kid, but I was closeted, of course, at the time. And my father was traditionally a very Democrat, Southwestern Pennsylvania Democrat, which, by the way, as you know, in the last election, by the time this is heard, it won't be the last election. But yeah. the Trump election, the first Trump election was that group of people voted for Trump and voted right. Trump in. But in history, they were always Democrat. But yeah. my father said to me when I went, he said, listen, you know, I busted my ass to get you into the best schools of the world. You've now arrived. The rich people are Republicans. That's what he said. <laughs> he said, when you go to Yale, be a Republican. And I'm like, Pop, but we're Democrat. You know, all I, all I remember was everybody. My dad used to campaign for Democrats, et cetera. He's yep. like, it doesn't matter. The rich people are Republican. So I went up there and I didn't know the difference. What I did know, though, I have to say at the time was that I was kind of disgusted by Democrats in southwestern Pennsylvania were different than Democrats at Yale. Democrats at Yale were very elite, and, and they were not really concerned with the blue-collar kind of folk that I was concerned about and economic policy. Because when, when you come from poverty, real poverty, being unemployed for many months at a time, my real origin story probably started back when I was seven or eight years old, sitting at my dad's dinner table and hearing my father complain about how the managers in his work environment, he was a he worked in a factory and the foreman would tell my dad to slow down because he was making the foreman look bad because if his piece rate was higher, it made it look like the foreman weren't doing their job for everybody else, which they weren't. Right. right. So my dad was told to slow down and my dad would come home and he goes, we're in trouble. 
because the you know steel industry was on its heels. Everybody mm-hmm. was claiming it was from cheap imports. Well, the reality it was it was cheap and more effective imports yeah. at the time. The Japanese had learned total quality management. They had learned Six Sigma, where they wasn't called that at the time. It was all from a gentleman by the name of Edwards Deming. We didn't know that. All we knew in our family was, you know, we're about to be out of a job because of the shitty way that these companies are run. Mm-hmm. And I made a commitment to grow up and be president and fix this problem. I didn't realize I was going to be fixing this problem outside of the executive branch, but in yeah. actually in the branch of what has now emerged, I think, is one of the most powerful branches of global transformation, which is corporations. And I believe very strongly that you can transform humanity, not only society, not only social systems, but you can transform humanity by transforming the way people show up and lead in the workplace. Yep. And that was the tipping point for me. Understood. And so you go to Yale, do you go right into Harvard from there? What was no, it? you didn't do that back then. I don't think you do right. it back then now anyway. But yeah, they don't do it that much. I got, got out of Yale and I did what I said I was going to do. I mean, I, I was running for president in my mind. Mm-hmm. I, was, I ran for city council. The Republican Party, I was the only Republican at Yale. There's like five of us, you know, and the, but this Pennsylvania state Republican Party reached out to me and found me a congressional seat to lead. And so I went back to Pennsylvania, but I wanted to get into manufacturing because I wanted to, my whole reason for being in politics was to fix American manufacturing. That was my mission. I was going to fix American manufacturing, make sure families didn't lose their jobs. So I went back to the other side of the state to work at a chemical company and also at the same time get involved in politics. That was my path. Nice. And did you end up winning? Did you get your seat in Congress? So I didn't because I really came out to myself as a gay man and realized because I'd fallen in love in senior year of Yale, moved in with my partner, and we were, you know, just roommates back then, which was perfectly fine for a 21-year-old, you know, two 21-year-old kids living together. But Mm -hmm. I just had to reconcile integrity you know, that I just couldn't see myself hiding that forever, particularly given that I was Republican. And so I, I bowed out of politics and made a pivot at that point to get into business. And now I hadn't planned on going to Harvard Business School, but it was the pivot at that point by deciding not to run to, for politics, but to make a difference and influence manufacturing through enterprise. So I went back to Harvard Business School. And one of the things I always teach people is the same people that supported me on my movement toward running for president, also the ones that helped me fund my loans for Harvard Business School. Wow. So it was the relationships that were crucial, not the direction. You know, I had built these great relationships. People were going to fund me for Congress. They the same people lent me money to go to business school. So go to business school, you know, ton of debt, had my first economic failure in between Yale and business school. My partner at the time was a real estate person and it was the peak of the real estate industry. We started buying homes to flip them and end up getting stuck with them. And then instead of going bankrupt, we refinanced and paid off all of my people we had raised money from, went back to Harvard with now even more debt than school loans yep. and had to dig out of all of that. Just again, out of integrity, I didn't want to go bankrupt. Yep. A lot of people use bankruptcy as an appropriate fashion of exit. But to me, it was, again, the integrity of, a, I look somebody in the eye and said that I was going to borrow money and pay them back, I do. Yeah, you keep those relationships that way. It's, you know, there's exactly. kind of a common theme of relationship driven that way. Exactly. And then what made you want to get your MBA if you had a, such an eye for politics? Did you just want, you want to know? Well, again, I, I, but my mission wasn't really politics. My mission was to save manufacturing. Yeah, it was to it. save jobs. So yeah. 
if it wasn't going to be through politics, which I realized probably wasn't a good way to do it anyway, yeah. I thought, well, you know, I'll go, if I'm getting involved in politics someday, maybe I'll be secretary of commerce yeah. and help there, but let me go over and be an enterprise. So yeah. be a CEO, be something. So I go up to Harvard Business School, the shining star of capitalism. And I started studying the very, well, it's interesting. It was the Japanese that were beating American steel mm -hmm. at the time. And so that, when I was at Yale, I majored in economics and political science. I thought that would be perfect to team me up for the presidency, but I also did all of my research on Japanese business. And I did my Yale thesis on Japanese business, trying to understand why the Japanese were so much more effective than we were. And I started uncovering this, this principle of management that was alive and well in Japan, but not in the United States, around worker empowerment. So when I went into manufacturing after Yale, I met somebody who at the, this, this company called Imperial Chemical Industries, ICI, that is no longer around it, but it's a big British chemical company that had a facility in that area. What I wanted was I wanted to start the total quality management system and ultimately became the head of North America in total quality management. And I had gone to, I'm so happy, by the way, I had gone to the CEO of North America for this company, ICI, with my the same kind of intention and chutzpah that my dad had, I said okay. to the guy, listen, you know, I want to go back to Harvard Business School. I just lost a shitload of money in real estate while I was working for you. I don't have enough money. And then, so I need to make, a, I need to have a loan. I will come back and work for you at ICI and I'll keep running your program here if you would be willing to make a loan for me to go to business school. And they didn't do it. And I was surprised back in then that was a pretty common thing not for that company wouldn't do it, but there was a pretty common thing for companies like Procter and Gamble and others. They didn't. So I'm so glad because I would have been an indentured servant to them to come back work right. for a number of years afterward. Instead, I was able to go to Deloitte. And that's when I made my first rise by listening to the CEO of Deloitte say that he wanted the brand Deloitte, which was number eight of the big eight. He wanted it to be, you know, in the top one or two, and maybe even audaciously as good as McKinsey which I think we know today that firm is clearly well-known and is recognized as McKinsey, but I took that to heart. And even though I was a kid as a summer intern at Deloitte, I went and did a research project to research what made professional services firms great, what built their brand. I did it on my own. Nobody asked. I just heard the CEO talk about the desire. So I did a research project for one of my courses and I interviewed the chief marketing officer of McKinsey, the chief marketing officer of Accenture. I told them all that I would turn around the research and give it back to everybody. Mm -hmm. And I sent it to the CEO of Deloitte, blew him away. And he invited me in to work with him and co-create what the marketing strategy would be for the company. And I said, well, I'll do it if you make me CMO. And they didn't even have the word CMO at the time. I said, I'll do it if you make me head of marketing. And he said, no, I'm not gonna make you head of marketing. You're a How kid, are you? 25. So where'd you get the chutzpah, so to speak, to do that? <laughs> Watch my dad. Like yeah. I said, my father did it when I was in fifth grade, trying to get me into that private school. My I watched my dad all the time. It's a Just great story of my father will pull along the side of the, you know, remember one year we had had, we had been so poor that year. There was no Christmas presents. My father saw what was called a big wheel, one of these three wheel tricycle things along the side of the road. And my dad just pulled off the side of the road and, you know, didn't just grab it out of the garbage. He walked up and asked whether he could have it at the, at the front door. I was so embarrassed, afraid one of my snooty kids, you know, friends would see me picking up trash for my Christmas present. Mm -hmm. But, my, you know, my dad always used to say, don't ever be afraid to ask. The worst anybody could ever say is no. Yep. 
Amen. So you're 25 years old, summer intern, go to the CEO of Deloitte, which at the time was still a top eight firm in the country and go, yeah, I want to be your head of marketing. Well, I sent him, he asked me to come in and do this consulting project for him. Right. And I said, and if I do it well under one condition, and he said, no, but get your ass in here and do this project. And I did. And within a couple of, and then, then he said, by the way, Keith, you couldn't be our chief marketing officer because he said, well, make me a partner. He's like, you know, we only make people partners, you know, in their 30s and 40s. And so and I ended up being the youngest partner elected at the company in its history. Wow. And so what ended up happening? Obviously, the project went well, but would love to know how that progressed because the first answer was no. Yeah. I mean, look, what happened was I've had lots of people work for me in the past who have said things like, you know, I want to do this project. And if I do this project, will you give me this money or will you do whatever? And what they're basically asking is to be paid in advance. I always worked in advance, not paid in advance. Mm-hmm. Like I always just did it, then showed that I had done extraordinary things and then asked for the raise or asked for the title. None of this. I want to do this. And here's what I'm going to do if you give me the title. Yep, such good advice. So I did it, you know, and I also created a consortium. I knew at the time, this is really the new book that I wrote. It's called Leading Without Authority. Mm-hmm. And, it, and this is a perfect example of it. You know, here I was just a kid. And I was calling meetings without authority. I wasn't running marketing. I was doing a marketing study. I was calling meetings of everybody who called themselves marketing, creating org charts, understanding where budgets were, et cetera. And I had no authority over this, but I I endeared myself and gained the buy-in from all of these people, not because I was pushing them on my solution, but because I was co-creating with them. And real real innovation happens through co-creation. Yep. And it's interesting. I mean, today, the very things that make Deloitte great, Deloitte Research, et cetera, are all things that I started when I was there. No, that's amazing. And so how long were you there? Do you, so you get the partnership role, the CMO role at what, 26? No, it was in my late 20s by this time, mid to late 20s. It was around 27, 28, 29, something like okay. that. Okay. You're really old by then. Got it. Yeah, <laughs> no, what, no, what happened was my CEO wanted to retire. And the next guy that was coming in, I did not have the same affinity for my CEO and I had become like father son. And at the same time, Barry Sternlich at Starwood Hotels was creating a new hotel chain called Starwood. Right now it was just Sheridan, Weston, and that was it. And a friend of mine, Tad Smith had gone over from Harvard to be their head of digital, called me and said, there's a chief marketing officer role here. And none of us are traditional hoteliers come on over and meet Barry. So I did. And I think Barry liked my mindset and put me into the CMO role. Again, crazy young age. Yep. You know, just when we were starting the Start Preferred Guest Program, the Heavenly Bed, we created the W at that time. We created you know, the St. Regis. All of those things got created right then. The very, you know, the wow. core. I got, and I got to see a really, truly brilliant innovator, Barry, mm-hmm. work. And what does it mean to truly run an organization for innovation? Yep. And you know, that's what I, you know, what I do for a living. I coach executive teams and it's interesting. Our whole focus is how do you get, how do you get 10 X in an organization through marshalling the resources of the team mm-hmm. to not see its current state as where it should be, but to co-create a new state. And that's what we've done. That's what I've always done. And we're working at General Motors to do that right now. Look at, Delta Airlines is one of our clients. Yeah, which they're just an extraordinary great. job. Yeah, no, I, I just booked two round trip flights on Delta 
in the middle of what's going on, but I feel super- I would not fly on anything else. No, I agree with you. I've watched what other airlines are doing in Delta. It's just so comfortable. And by the way, Barry, I, I've worked with him a little bit as well. One of the more brilliant guys out there. Like, you know, there's- Yeah, and I, I do agree with a lot of the sentiment that you only have to be smart enough and hardworking enough to be successful. And then a lot of other factors come in, but he's one of those guys that is actually brilliant. And successful. Yeah, I mean, brilliance is one thing that he's innovative. It's its own distinct brilliance. Yeah. You know, like Steve Jobs, Barry has a real specific eye for design, Mm -hmm. which is extraordinary. And that's helped him in that particular industry bring design into a business that actually didn't have it. It only had it in the niche properties, you know, the stuff that Peninsula and a few others were doing. You know, the Schrager, Ian Schrager brands were doing interesting things, not. And all of a sudden, you bring it into an organization like W at scale. It's powerful. Yep, agreed. But listen, I mean, I think if you do the whole arc, right, it's basically yeah. a poor kid born out of insecurity and shame and fear decides to be successful at his father's dinner table, recognizes that it's through people that I'll access that success, but it's not using them. It's serving them. It's authentically yep. being with them. It's family. I mean, that woman that on the golf course that introduced me to the congressman ended up being like a mother to me. Mm-hmm. Alicanto was like a father to me. It's real relationships. And that's my job. I mean, my job today is to get teams to awaken to the realization that number one, your ambition needs to be 10x, not 10%. Takes the same amount of time to go 10x as it does 10%. You just yep. have to think differently. I mean, the exact same, you know, you take a look at you and your team. You and your team can be anywhere it decides to be. Yep. The question is, what is the momentum of where it is? And, and you as a leader, what is your momentum in leading? What is your momentum in hiring? What is your momentum in how you facilitate meetings? What is your momentum in all of those things, right? And the whole team has to make a commitment to fucking just bust through the glass ceilings that are holding you down. Yep. And those glass ceilings are, are habits and rituals that have kept you where you are. And how do you go to the 10X level? And then you can only do that through tr- true co-elevation. The team has to make that deep commitment to challenge each other and hold each other accountable and kick each other in the ass, but also yep. prop each other up. I mean, that's that's what how how it happens. It's yep. not easy, but no. um, that's but, how we're finding the turnarounds of some major companies. Yeah, and I think that if it's easy, it's not fun either, though. Like if you take it as a challenge, like you, you said it best, like it takes the same amount of time. So you might as well do something challenging and like engaging versus just getting by. So I think that's important. So when did you end up leaving Starwood? How old were you at that point? Early, mid, mid, early thirties, mid, mid thirties. And what, what was your next step? What did you want to do from there? So back then marketing was not a path for running something. Mm-hmm. Like I was never going to be CEO as the chief marketing officer at the time. Yeah. I don't know. I, it's not a traditional job even now. Yeah. It's shifted though. There's, there's CMO stepping into CEO roles. Not as mid. Yeah. But right. So I wanted to run something. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was I came out West to work for Mike Milken and it was a smaller business. It was one of it was a business in his portfolio, computer games company. It was a smaller business, but I still was able to tether myself to hanging on to somebody brilliant. Right. So yeah. I'd been used to the, being right hand of the CEO of Deloitte, you know, being underneath Barry and, and the chief marketing officer that, that started with him. And I figured working with Mike closely, even though it was a smaller business, I would get my chops in finance, get my chops in operations. And so we ran that company, four-year venture, four or five years, then sold it. And I decided to go on my own and start this Frozzy Greenlight 
mm-hmm. which with the intention from the very beginning was to be a company's growth coach. I wanted to be, and I thought originally my clients were going to be more sales and marketing types. But what I found is that the real inhibitor of growth wasn't making sales and marketing better. It was making the executive team more interdependent mm-hmm. and more co-elevating, which is, again, the leading without authority principle, which is a team committed to an audacious mission and committed to each other. And committed to each other isn't just hand-holding. You've seen me my work. It's yep. butt-kicking. It's challenging. The team's got to be willing to push each other to new levels of height. Yep, agreed. And be able to receive that push too. I think that's, yeah. you know, opening well, I don't up. let people be defensive. Defensive right. Defensiveness is mediocrity. Yep. If I see defensiveness, then my job is to increase that person's resilience and also strengthen the relationships in the team so that everybody feels more respectful, forgiving, and caring, but at the same time, continue to heat up the candor because without it, you get mediocrity. Yep. There are places that are just, you know, like Ray Dalio wrote the book Principles all about a company being fully transparent, but he just hires assholes. Yeah. Easy, right? <laughs> so it's like the early days yep. of Microsoft. Everybody was like competitive with each other, et cetera. You know, you can have both, but you have to have the relationship. Yep. And that's totally fair. So when did you decide to write Never Eat Alone? That was the first book, correct? Yeah. So I, I came out to work for Mike. Mm-hmm. I'm working for Mike as the CEO of this tech company, this computer games company. And uh, somebody approached me, Inc, somebody, an Inc. magazine writer approached me to, to do an article about me. And I said, yes. And I hated the article because it was all, I mean, I, I thought it was going to be about, because, you know, how I had all this crazy young success. Yeah. And it was, but it was all about networking, which at the time didn't have a good rap. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I'm not a networker. I said, I build relationships and I build partnerships and Mm -hmm. that's not networking. So I said, fuck it, I'm going to redefine networking. So I decided to write the book that would fundamentally define what networking is. And it has, we've sold, you know, a million copies of the book. It's been consistently the best selling book on the topic and one of the top business books in the last 50 years. Yep. Did you expect that? Did you go like, I've got something here and this is going to be a best, you know, I'm definitely going to sell a million copies of this. (laughs) Not even close. I've uh, thought that about subsequent books that also did that then didn't happen. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm actually more proud right now. I'm pr- more proud of this new book. When it's a great book. book. I mean, the principle of it is awesome and it's helped us. I mean, even, you know, doing a couple of workshops with you have been super helpful. So we actually leveraged something we learned with you for our entire executive offsite. First one since COVID hit a couple of weeks ago, we leveraged kind of the format you gave us and how to work together as a team. So it's been awesome. Anytime I can be helpful, let me know. You, you're always gracious that way, and I appreciate it. So a couple more questions for you. Number one, what's next? You know, you're a man of vision. What do you see coming down the next 10 years for you? Well, the probably the most important thing, well, first of all, my traditional business has been me building relationships with the upper echelon of the Fortune 500 and serving those executives in those organizations. And that business is doing well this year, and, mm-hmm. and surprisingly, and you have that depth of intimate relationships serving those executive teams, you know, it doesn't get shaken that badly. Mm-hmm. But I've actually started four new businesses this year. This has been the most extraordinary year of my life because I haven't been jumping on planes and moving around and around yep. traveling, you know? So Isn't number one- how that efficiency you find? It's just, I'm the same, you know me, I'm the same way. And it's like, wow, I have so much more time to do things. One of my new clients just asked me, 
to take on a, a coaching series with their firm in out of Florida and but wants to do it all in person. And I've really paused mm -hmm. to decide if I want to do that. It's the same thing for me with all the events and everything I was going to. It's like, now I'm like, can I send someone else here? Do I really need to be there? And I and I'll to tell everything. you, I believe I can do a better job virtually than I could have yeah. otherwise in terms of some of the, I mean, I've got a website called virtualteamswin.com. Mm -hmm. And teaching a lot of the the area, the things that that I believe your remote team could actually be better than your physical team ever 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 was. We're seeing it. I mean, culture becomes a little bit harder. I will say that's the one downside that's a little harder is that community feel. But everything else is more productive. We can bring people on anywhere. We have employees go from being in four different states before July, and then in July is when I actually said like, don't worry about going back to the office. And now we're in over twenty states around the country. Yeah. People have moved everywhere. California is expensive. New York is expensive. Boston's expensive. These are places where we were. And so they're just moving everywhere else. And now we have, again, people all over. We're going to cover half the states in the country soon. And you know, my recruiting team tells me that in the next two years, they want to be in all of them. Why not? Yeah, no, it's awesome. And there's a lot of opportunity with that, a lot of diversity, a lot of different thinking, a lot of, yeah. frankly, cost savings. Well, you also don't have to pay cost savings. You don't have to yeah. pay the big city rates. So. I started four new businesses. Yeah. And one of them is in middle market. So serving organizations your size that mm -hmm. traditionally wouldn't need me as the coach because our process, like you said, you got taught the process, mm -hmm. how you're using it, right? And now we can do that all over the place. So I brought on a new partner to run that business. Rob's business, who you know, is now focused predominantly on scaling. So when I do the work that I do at the top of the firm, yep. we're now teaching how all team leaders in a company can reinvent themselves for the way they lead. Yep. But this is a bigger thing. So I really put a lot of energy in my research institute. I've always had one. Mm -hmm. And I put a lot of money into it this year. And I've had hundreds and hundreds of, of executives, and I'm writing a new book on this topic, co-creating with me, what is the future of leadership? How will a leader lead five years from now? Yep. And it'll be different. It's a much more volatile world. Yep. It's a, it's a leader that needs to come up with processes to see around the corner. Yep. You need to lead in a much more agile fashion. You need to lead because you can lead virtually much more inclusively, mm -hmm. collaboratively, plus the workload can get overburdened. So you need to really focus much more on resilience. So we're designing the leadership model of the future and writing a book on it. And I'm very excited about that. I'm excited and, about that too. That is that is probably the biggest challenge of most companies right now is how do you lead and what's happened? And how do you also, as you said, kind of see around corners so that the next time something crazy happens, because it feels like it's going to accelerate. It, yeah, stay tuned. If anybody is interested, go to, there's a website called go forward to work, go forward to work.com. Perfect. And you can see everything that we're writing in that. Because I said, no, let's not go back to work and look yep. like where we used to. Let's go forward to work. And that's where I'm spending most of my yep. time. And then with that, created an info products business that probably a mastermind group that I'm going to start. So it's been a very busy year. I'm publishing a ton. I'm writing two books. I've got tons of articles in HBR and another down Forbes. I've got a column. I've got a column in Inc. now. Yep. It's been a phenomenal year for me. I really have loved that's it. Awesome. Yep. I mean, despite great. the horrific situation no, I, yeah. going on in the marketplace and my fear of my mother and, you mm -hmm. know, Lots of stuff going on with my kids that, that, that are some that are troubling, but relative to my achieving my purpose that I started when I was six or seven years old at my dad's dinner table, it's coming pretty good. And you know, being able to serve UAW, my dad was a UAW steelworker, mm -hmm. and you know, 
the folks at General Motors claim that the work we're doing is one of the reasons they didn't go back into bankruptcy. So sort wow. of all comes fully around. Very happy about it. It's amazing. And so you've given a lot of great advice on this podcast, but would like to know if you had to, one thing you could tell someone that's really trying to pursue their dreams, trying to you know achieve at the highest level, what would be one thing you would push someone to do? Team out. Don't do it alone. I mean, we are unbridled now. My, you know, Peter Diamandis and I have become much closer. We're good friends. He written, you know, many of your folks might not know from his book Abundance, etc. His new book that just came out, uh, "The Future Is Faster Than You Think." Yeah. But he and I are talking all the time and helping each other's business. Entrepreneurs and folks, you need to, and, and this is where co-elevation comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, just the principle of co-elevating, going higher together. I yep. put up a website, coelevation.com. Anybody wants resources on just that topic of how do you begin to think about your life, not as your own, but as a, in a sense of co-elevating with teams and how does that change the world? It's our entire thesis on our internal teams, but also your community. Like we talk about build community as one of our core values. It's huge. And that's incredible advice. Well, you did such a beautiful job. What you're doing in that big community of entrepreneurs and designers and web stuff. I mean, you know, You've done such a good job of tapping into community. I've been very impressed by watching you during this past year. Appreciate that. Well, Keith, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being on and I'm sure we'll talk soon. My pleasure, Eric. Look forward to it. Thanks. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.